like fourth dimensional LSD fueled way of looking at it that like it's not articulate yet I'll, I'll eventually get this figured out but mm-hmm. I can just word vomit it at you mm-hmm. like you've got all these like expectations of what your life is supposed to be and you sort of develop them kind of in childhood or maybe through your life you know like this is what I wanted to happen mm-hmm. and um, at some point you know they either do or they don't the things that you want but at the end of the day you have you know assuming things don't, things don't go great you know like eight decades to like you know, be alive on earth and mm-hmm. walk around and see the universe. Mm-hmm. And if, if thing, if, if that didn't go according to, you know, your, the plan that your apish evolved brain came up with, it's like, dude, so what? Like this was the life you had. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm sure there's, you know, a philosophy that covers that sort of, maybe it's stoicism or something, but it's like, this is just like, this is just, this is how your life was. And you know, what is that a big deal too? Maybe is what this is getting at. Right like to yourself, but then like, then just have your goals be what you have. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's a lot easier said than done. I, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but there's also, if your goals are just do whatever happens, then you don't end up striving for the really big things that you wanted. Right. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that follows. I could see how it's a super tempting way to walk into it. Like you're, I think having an ambition is actually really kind of cool. And very frustrating too. I obviously am not going to be getting this novel I just wrote published the traditional way. So I've come to my peace with that. And maybe that's part of what's been fueling all this too, that I got to start all over with another one now. But um, if if you're just like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do whatever and and live my 80, my eight decades here. I, I feel like there's, it's cool to have like something big to grow for, you know, to really drive you. I like people with that fire. And I do too. I think maybe I'm, I'm not expressing it well. Like I said, this wasn't articulate because I'm not anti-ambition. I'm very pro-ambition. I think it's, it's great to have big projects. You know, like I want people like Elon Musk to be like, you know what? Fucking Mars is going to happen. Yeah. I don't want him to be like, eh, you know, it's not meant to be or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I want is like, uh, first of all, I don't know what the process is exactly like, but maybe, you know, I'm not sure when it's time to give up and self-publish or sell it yourself or whatever. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean that like, that can't happen for you, right? Right. But say um, something that you know you wanted to happen, but just some it didn't work out. Like a like a something that you know could have happened but didn't. You know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so like how long? And I, I don't think this is tearing her up, but just now going with hypothetical. Imagine she, you know, this is like two or three years. She's still upset. Oh. And so like at that oh, point, it's how like, long are you going to let that eat away at you? It's like, dude, don't. Yeah. Like this, yeah. this, this just happens not to happen. Right. And there's nothing that you can do to change that. If you could, if you could through hard work and good plans make it happen, then by all means, go nuts. Yeah. It's a sucky thing that happened, and you can use it to fuel you, but don't let it like destroy you. Yeah. Or or maybe just take a different spin on it, like. A very minor example, a few weeks ago, um, I learned that they're hiring another entry-level developer for the core services team at work, which is like the cool platform team that's building the foundation of this three-quarter billion dollar company that I was on for like six months before I was moved off to like the mobile app team, which is like, fuck you. Um, <laughs> well, so I was kind of butthurt about it for a little while. And then I learned they're hiring another SE1 for that team. Okay. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, I know more than they do. I've been doing this for a while and I know what they, what they've been doing over there. It would take a lot less time to catch me up. Yeah. What makes this new, but better than me. Right. And I was kind of bitter about that for like two hours, maybe most of a day. And then when I was walking across the bridge back to my car and I was like, you know, why am I bummed about this? Mm. You know, in a few, in a couple of years, I'll look back and be like, oh yeah, 
I was on. I was not selected to go back to the cool team at the first de- development job that I had. Like, how big of a deal is this really? Yeah. Now, I didn't take that to be like, you know what? Things are just going to happen. I don't need to try. I'm going to take a back seat. I still want to get awesome. I still want to be really good at my job and be a, you know, for the goal of like, A, making a fortune and B, you know, excelling. I'd love to be, you know, like there's a 25 year, or I think he just turned 26. Um, and he's a senior. I mean, his dad's an architect, so like he's been around this as a kid, but like software architect, yeah. Um, and he, uh, I mean, he's been like since he started here, just this titan of like knowledge that the you know 15 year veteran seniors are going to like be think about this. I would love to be. I think that's super fucking cool. That said, the guy's got some personality things with work that he takes it, I think, way too seriously. Granted, there's a lot on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. This company wouldn't be where it's at without specifically him, Mm -hmm. but like. I think he doesn't let himself enjoy it. And I think you know. that's the hard part about work. If you really want to be good at it, you got to care. And I do I just care. Can't care about accounting. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, so I care, but not enough to like let it ruin my day, okay. right? Or bring down my like life. He seems to hate his life, and I'm, dude. You make I'm assuming like hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. and you're twenty six. You'll be able to retire at thirty two. Yeah, get a grip, bro. Yeah, you know. Do whatever you need to do to enjoy the fuck out of this, right? Yeah. But I mean, I, I get it. He's a different person. He's got his other life stresses. I don't know him that well, whatever. But um, the, so like my, my nonchalant attitude doesn't mean that I don't want to kick ass and excel. It just means that like I don't, I'm trying not to let things get to me and I think it's working. Right. You know, like when, I'm sorry, we're still talking about not the podcast. No, that's okay. Um, you know what? I'll throw this into the main podcast at some point because this is interesting. And that was more of a hypothetical. I don't, th- I think that, she may, I think, I know she was hurt by it, but I don't think that she still is. But if she is, she, you know, the, I think the perspective to take is just this, you know, big step back, you know, what Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan would call the cosmic perspective. Mm. And just like, you know, not to say like, oh you don't God. matter, you're an ant on this floating speck yeah, of I dust. Can't, I can't take the cosmic perspective because I always get suicidal. Then, then that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm like, like, I see nothing matters. I will, God, and that's one of those things that like you want, you want to be remembered after you die, right? Sure. And that's why you're right. You were like, maybe I'll be like Homer or Shakespeare or something. But both of those guys got really fucking lucky. And for each one of them, there's been like 10,000 different writers. And you know, eventually you're just going to fade into obscurity. And it's only been 2,000 years. Give it 100,000 years. No one's going to know anything that I've ever done. And it's just, it's like, so why bother with anything at all? So, well, so you and I have two solutions to that. Well, one, one is not die. Yes. Then you can continue to be productive and contribute to society. That's right. And just enjoy stuff. That too. Um, But, but (laughs) I guess that's another part of life. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the other part, I think it is like, not, not to worry about like, not to not care. And I, and and by the cosmic, maybe the cosmic perspective was the right way to think about it. Cause that's not. I think the constructive, like things still matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still, you know, I still get, you know, annoyed in traffic or something, but I don't get, let it overtake me, you know? So like when we went to go visit my sister in the hospital, when the first night that she was in there, uh, we could go Wednesday, we could go last Wednesday. We got there before, I didn't know if we were supposed to go up or not. So we just hung out and talked outside for like an hour. And we talked a lot about like, you know, the possibility of one of our family members dying or something. And, you know, like I've historically expressed a very, terrified and kind of kryptonite attitude regarding death. And, you know, when I was talking about this, Rachel said, Oh yeah, you know, I thought, you know, I've thought about this before about how, you know, this might impact you, you know, like a couple years ago, my grandma had some very minor surgery Mm. and, uh, you know, it was just one more thing, you know, she's in her eighties and other things are going wrong and they fixed it. And I kind of came home and I was pretty upset that, you know, one of these days they're 
not going to be able to fix it. And it's going to be a, you know, eventually she's going to die. And that's hard for me to say, but I can actually say that sentence now, you know, whenever this was, I just told her, you know, like eventually it's not going to be a surgery that we're going to go to. Right. Um, so like, uh, damn, well, I mean, it sucks and it's, you know, it's terrible. I don't, I'm not, I'm not resigned to death. I think it's still the worst thing ever and no one should ever have it, but, um, in their lives or to themselves. But dude, I'm, I'm still terrified of getting old. I know that at least, at least two or three times a year, something happens. Like just a few days ago, I slipped on a, that third step right there and you know, still young enough that I managed to just jump down on the ground and catch myself. But I'm like, Dude, if I was old and 80 and didn't have this ability, I would have landed on my ass and broken a hip and possibly died. And just even if I wasn't died, I would have been crippled for the rest of my life. And like, fuck, I'm going to have to be so much more careful when I'm old like that. And it just not looking forward to that whole process. I'm sort of I'm not really coping with that at all. Yeah. I think I I'd rather by not coping. I mean, I'm not even considering it. I think. I mean, I'm old enough to where like I've had lasting damages from injuries, which is stupid because we're you know we're young and virile. That shouldn't be the, <laughs> that shouldn't be the case. All right. But you know, when you're 80, you'll put a banister on your stairs or, or what do you call it, a guard. So yeah. like, and I mean that in a literal and metaphorical sense, right? You can set life things up to be more careful. Um, but I'm also strongly suspective, suspecting that, and we'll talk about this, I think, with David in a couple of weeks. Um, the future is not going to be like now, probably. I don't, and I don't envision a future where I get old and decrepit. One way or another, I don't see that happening. Okay. I see us either all not being in meat suits. I see meat suits lasting forever, being super safe or regener- regenerating, or I see the world on fire. Like those are, I think the three most likely outcomes in fire in various different right, outcomes. Right, right. So yeah. like the idea that we're still going to be working 40 hour days and, you know, um, doing all the things like we do now in 50 years blows my mind. I don't think, I think that's extremely unlikely. I don't know. I, I mean, I also think, I don't I can't put a likelihood on it because while I agree with all the things I see about basically how the tech singularity is coming and we're going to be replaced uh, if we augmented or augmented. Right. I I still I remember (laughs) my childhood as a Jehovah's Witness, as I guess I mentioned every now and then because it was such a major impact on me. But uh, one of my things that was that that happened to me as I was um, leaving the faith is the Jehovah's Witnesses first predicted the end of the world in 1914. And then again in 1975 and the entire theology is one of the entire world is going to change drastically within our lifetime. So you've heard this spiel before. Uh Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, I knew people who in 1975 thought the world was going to end. And I saw as I was leaving the faith, a little, uh, business card that was being passed around by, uh, like atheists, you know, as, as a, I don't know, a gotcha or whatever. But it had a little check mark. Uh, it had a little check box, and next to it says, "I am ten years old. I believe that the world will end in my lifetime." Then it has another check box below that. "I am twenty years old. I believe the end will world uh, will end in my lifetime." And it says, "As you reach the birthday, check it off." And it went all the way down to uh, one hundred years, and it was like, now just imagine all the people that if they had this and filled it out would have you know fully, full, full filled out cards and died. And I kind of feel like this is the same. I have emotional echoes of that same sort of thing that, sure like yeah i i can definitely see the world changing drastically and i donate money to miri every month and i am worried about it but on the other hand i'm also remind remembering that there is a chance nothing will change once bitten twice shy kind of thing right 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 i don't right. really know i mean you know people debate about how much has changed and how much we can expect to change yeah. and 
all I can say is that whatever reasons that the Yudkowskis and Bostroms have of, you know, of the world have are better reasons that the world will change than the Jehovah's Witnesses have. Oh, yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses have fairy tales. Right. So at the end of the day, these could be deluded, wishful thinking, you know, optimists or something, right? Um, But there's also a real possibility. There's, there's, there's for the first time in history, a, an actual real possibility, right? Yeah. I think Yudkowsky mentioned somewhere in the sequences that like try as they might, or no, it was on the Cryonics pitch, you know, 200 years ago, humanity could have, or, you know, someone could have spent their entire life trying to, you know, strive for immortality and it wouldn't have done nothing because there was just no hope. Mm -hmm. You know, now there's a thin hope sign of a cryonics. Mm -hmm. So like things are changing and I'm, you know, I don't really have the background knowledge or large repertoire of like history, either life history or known reading history to like draw from. But I get the very strong impression that we're at a new kind of age. Um, We're on the cusp, you know, well, you know, Sagan talked about this in the eighties, you know, like we, we are at this turning point in history and things could be, he, well, he said it a bit differently than, than the point I'm making. He was talking about how the very same technology that we have, I think his, his phrasing was like, it's as if there was a God who gave us these tools. He's talking about nuclear weapons and nuclear power who gave us these things and gave us the choice. We could go to the stars and colonize the universe, or we could blow ourselves up and die on our stupid little rock. Um, I'm paraphrasing. But um, we we're at that point now with like you know scientific advancement in history. We can actually do stuff, and the world is in a place where it's never been before. It puts me in this vaguely optimistic hope. But I mean, regarding aging and stuff too, it doesn't have to be a full you know intelligence explosion singularity to stop that, right? It could right. be uh, Aubrey de Grey's um, you know life extension style yeah. thing, right? Just so, continually riding the the wave of life extension improvements. And, you know, if that means that I live in a 55-year-old body for 120 years till we get cool cool new ones, then that's fine. Yeah. Um, or, you know, back up worst-case scenario, or second-to-worst-case scenario, I end up being declared legally dead and hope that at some point I get woken up, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. We'll talk. I think it'll be more fun to speculate about the future. We'll get David. He's eloquent and smart. He'll have something fun to say here, but I don't have... Maybe if I actually sat and thought about it, I'd be filled with dread and anxiety. But right now, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, pretty sure things are going to be okay. I'll try and take care of myself. I've been trying to go to the gym. I've been slacking the last couple of weeks. It's been stressful. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the first time, like, really since, like, junior high, I've been working out regularly, which awesome. is nice. Um, do you listen to podcasts or something when you work out? Uh, I used to always watch The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Ah, that would have been perfect. That, oh, that was wonderful. That Those was, were good times. Oh, that, that was ideal Remember how simple the world used to be? conditions. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, Stewart left The Daily Show and Colbert Report folded. And now I, mean, I sometimes watch The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. It's not quite as good. And I still haven't found something else to take The Colbert Report's place. I mean, he does, his own, he does that new show, The Late Show. Eh, but it's, it's not, not the same. No, it's not. Sometimes I watch Steven Universe. Sometimes My Little Pony. Uh, I got into Atlanta recently. But Atlanta is so visually gorgeous. I don't want to take my eyes off the screen for too long, you know? Sure. So I don't know. It's, uh, I, 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 I need some sort of entertainment and that is, that is what I do. But I mean, you could rewatch Rick and Morty or something, you know, fill that time. That's not a bad idea. Cause that's not a very, like you need to pay full, pay full attention show. Well, I'll I mean, it this. is, but once you've seen it once, I'll say this, I've seen every episode probably at least five times of and Rick and Morty. Holy shit. That's, that's kind awesome. of how, that's kind of how I watch TV. Okay. It's, it's dumb. I real, I was, we were talking before we got on the show that like, I mean, I, 
I don't use my free time well at all. I don't engage <laughs> in new projects. I don't better myself at my job. I want to, you know, I want to get better at the things that I need to do to excel at my career. And I'm not doing that. Instead, I'll rewatch, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine or, you know, other, you know, not even like meaningful shows. They're just funny and relaxing. And um, uh, relaxing is a thing that's important to do, too. Yeah. But for like two hours a day, I don't know, maybe more. Two sometimes. hours a day doesn't sound like that bad. Of, of, re- of watching reruns. Okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could, it could be worse. Yeah. And I've, I mean, that's probably about an average. Um, but it's still like, come on, I could be, I, I, like I said earlier, I could at the very least be watching new television. Right. But I hate memorizing new characters and new names and new storylines. Okay. I, I still find that process daunting. That's why it's so hard for me to start new books. Ah. But I need to, I need to get over that. And I think I will. I'll just actually start doing it. I'll watch Atlanta. I need to catch up on Westworld. Oh, Atlanta's so good. No, I'm sure it's great. I've heard only good things. That reminds me, I saw Deadpool today. I didn't say that on the air yet. It was very fun. Everyone go see it. Speaking of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Ter- Terry Crews plays a main character in that show. Oh, in Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah. Okay, okay. And it, it's great. He, the whole show is outstanding. They do, I mean, they're all great actors. They're all great. A lot of them are very funny, like people in other stuff. Um, Andy Samberg plays the main role. But it's just like the level of like writing, like, you know, the straight man of the group, you know, the, the, the stern Professor McGonagall style character mm-hmm. just does a kind of a comedic twist the straight man in the show is gay mm-hmm. and you know that's it's that level of like kind of like subtle quirky like jivey humor that runs the whole thing okay. um so it's like it's vaguely a cop show but they're just it's it's really funny a lot of running jokes and that sort of thing the fact that it's a cop show also kind of threw me i mean it might as well not it could be a it could be anything yeah. it just happens to be a, a cop show it could it's you know i suppose i can think of it as in an ideal world this is what actual cops would be like Maybe we'll talk about this at some point. I okay. am of the unpopular opinion that police are not as bad as everyone, as it is now popular to shit on them for. Okay. Many thing, many cops are many. There are many issues with the police force. I'm not, I don't want to be the guy who's like, you know, uh, blue lives matter. Our boys in blue never do anything wrong. Yeah. Um, they do. And that sucks. Mm. And, uh, but I mean, you know, this is somebody who had a vague ambition in their teenage years of wanting to be a police officer because I loved the idea of like the protector class of people. Uh-huh. You know, it's 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 their ambition to be, you know, the first line of defense protecting people, and that's not really what it is. No, but that's, I mean, that's, I love that idea too, and that's what I aspired to be. I think. I think that's one of the reasons that the police force is as bad as it is because the people who are just sadistic monsters get in there, and the the protector class leave because they don't want to be around those people and so it degenerates yeah it could be kind of it could have gotten to the bottom and i don't i'm not that in on it i do i was really slowed down a couple of years ago um when i came across a number that i could dig up again i've got it saved somewhere in my reddit history um was it the roughly 30 percent of cops score on the um psycho no 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 this was the opposite kind of finding that it was like um 85 percent of the time there was, it was like a list of like all the fatal shootings that year, mm-hmm. maybe 2015 or 16 or something. And there were a few hundred in the U S which mm-hmm. is a lot, but like 85% of the time they were under the apparent threat of a gun. Okay. And I was under the impression before that, that it was like almost never that they were shooting poor innocent people screaming not to be killed all the time. Right. And that's at most like 15% of these deaths, which don't get me wrong. That's way too many. I was about I'm not, to I'm say, not, I'm not defending a lot. that, yeah. but my perception was, and I think many people's perception is, is that it's like all of them. And it's like, no, a lot of these people are brandishing a weapon or something and like, um, or an apparent firearm, which I think that's what this number was. Mm -hmm. Wasn't just like they came at them with a bat. In that case, you don't need to shoot them 16 times, but 
the same time too, they're not going to throw down their gun and grab their baton and get into a sword fight, right? Right. And I mean, the reason is that like, if they lost the sword fight, which they probably would because they're not trained swords fighters um, or knife fighters, or whatever it is, I don't want to make it too too facetious, but um, the the idea that like, hey, if I get knocked out, now this bad guy has a gun because mm-hmm. now he's got my gun. Mm-hmm. And now I think of all the damage he could do. And also you kind of do got to shoot him a lot because I mean, they, the, the thing that stops people is blood loss, right? And you need to shoot people a number of times to get the blood loss low enough that they'll uh, high enough that they'll pass out. Right. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm horrified by every instance that, you know, there was that one just a couple months ago where because like bullets don't do enough meat damage to incapacitate you by taking out a muscle. You just got to. Yeah, but they fucking they hurt. Gotta, I think that stops a lot of people, too. Yeah, um, but yeah, if it's somebody's charging you, you're not going to shoot, stop and see if they stopped and then shoot again. It's kind of just like, nope, we got to put this guy down. Mm-hmm. And you know, is there a, a trigger happy subsection of the population of police officers? Absolutely. And that's fucked up and that shouldn't be the case. I'm not coming off as, like I said, cops do nothing wrong, but I think I'm less anti-cop than the average person in my community. I think it's the fact that there are so many awful cops that really puts me off to the system as a whole because it's the same thing with like the Catholic priests. It's sure only a small percentage of them molested children, but what is wrong with the institution that those people stay there and are protected? It makes me think that everyone there must be pretty awful if these you know psychotic sadistic cops keep just staying in the force and are protected by their friends you're not that much better than the other guy and i don't think like someone who did have that protector ideal would be able to stay in in a system like that that does protect the the sadistic awful people yeah there's probably the 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 occasional martyr who manages to stick around and try and make things better or something but Uh yeah and that's that's a really good point and i think that i mean you know, the system that allows bad police officers, you know, why isn't the motivation of every, of every district or precinct, I'm not sure how this work on what level these distances are made at, but why isn't it like, no, absolutely body cams. We should, the second those become available, we want them all. We want these bad cops off the street even more than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, combine that with the fact that like your average person's only encounter the police is them rolling you for, you know, going through a stop sign, you know, or rather like, not a California stop is what it's called where you come to a slow stop or slow roll and then go through you get $150 tickets. Like you're only in contact with the police of them being complete dicks and being unfair. So like there's that, but I mean, I think you've got, you know, your sadistic dick bag cop. Who's like, I'm going to go out there and make lives hard on people or like, you know, the ones who are like, no, I think this is great. I want to help people and it'll be nice. I went through like the youth police Academy when I was in junior high Hmm. and all those cops are just like, you know, the warm and fuzzy, you know, like, yeah, this is great. You know, we're, we're here to help and this is cool. You can drive this police car. We'll let you, you know, do these little drills and it was fun. Awesome. And then you get people like Kyle Kinane comedian mentioned, you know, like pays $10 more than an hour than the post office and I get a gun. Like, oh yeah, I get you, man. You're just, you're just having a job, you know? Um, but at the end of the day too, you know, it's pretty cool that if, you know, somebody breaks into your house or you're feeling threatened, you can call the police. Many people can call the police and somebody will show up at your house, put their life at risk to help come help, mm-hmm. you know? Granted, I know that many people don't have that privilege. A lot of people, you know, there aren't cool cops or cops aren't cool to some people. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I've been convinced that cops generally always make things worse when they show up. They can never make things better unless like there's literally someone in your house trying to shoot you or something. And uh, they can just bring a gun into a situation and and make things worse. I mean, at some point you want, you know, you might want somebody to bring a gun. Right. right. Like, I know. guess if there was literally someone in my house. Yeah. Then, then they couldn't make it any worse at that point. Right. Yeah, probably. Like I said, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that there are, aren't problems. There definitely are. And they're, they're huge and they're, they're terribly discouraging and 
you know, societally depressing. But the idea that like all cops are terrible. I hate that. I hate all anything is anything sentences for the most part. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's painting with too broad a brush, which we've had a conversation like that before. It's like, and it could be too many. It is too many. Right. It's okay. It's certainly not all, but it's enough that I am very hesitant to ever involve the police in anything. I can't remember the last time I called the cops. I called them a few times in my teens when things went, you know, scary, but nothing ever useful happened. So that's a good point. I went to the police station once to file a report when the, the neighbor at my old place threatened to kill everyone. And uh, they're like, okay, we're writing it down. Thanks. I'm like, that's, that's all you can do. They're like, yeah, that's literally all we can do. We wrote down that you made a complaint. I mean, at some point, that's not... I, I do this annoying thing where like I try to steal man things that they're just made of jello and it's not going to work. But yeah. one thing is like, what would you want them to do? Take your word for it and go arrest them? Not like, arrest them, but... Go sh- talk to I, them and... Maybe. Go know? talk to them. Maybe they should have done that, right? Yeah. I mean, at the very least, if two other people came in in a few months with those, with those things, like, all right, now we've got enough that our red tape says we can go do something. Yeah. But you don't want your neighbor, you know, who just doesn't like you because of whatever reason to be able to call the cops and be like, he's being a dick and have cops come kick your door in. Right. So right. like there needs to be some barrier there. Yeah. But at the same time, it's still like, Hey, we should do something before this person snaps and starts actually killing his neighbors. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a tough line to cross or a tough line to tow. I don't really know how to solve that. I was just, I was kind of surprised at how useless going to them was. Yeah. And I mean, I guess obviously it's better to have a paper trail because if it keeps happening, you know, they build up a record and especially, you know, if other people complain as well, but it was, it's like, huh? Okay. I almost feel like that was a waste of time. Yeah. I can totally see that. Um, Sam Harris had a cop on his podcast. I think it was, I can't remember what the episode was. It was right during those like four episodes in a few couple months where he did like a, a Navy SEAL, um, a police officer slash like now private, you know, advanced weapons tactics trainer and stuff. And it was like a few episodes on like how to deal with like violence in the real world. Oh yeah. I, I remember that one. That was yeah. a really good episode. It was really good. Yeah. Um, so strong recommend on that. It was a fun perspective, but one thing that Harris, I can't remember if he points this out to his cop friend or his another episode, but he was like, I have a friend who lives in LA, like in a million dollar house neighborhood and she was robbed. And you know, one of the things they stole was like her iPad and they could point to the house where this person was at. So she goes to the, the police station because on her phone, you know, as long as you've got it connected to your network of devices on your I- iCloud stuff, you can say, yep, from my iPhone, I can see my iPad and this is the house that it's at. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, thanks. And it's like, well, what you guys are going to go get it. It's like, we literally can't. Our resources are stretched too thin. So like, at that point, if they don't have the resources to go after, you know, some millionaire stuff in a nice neighborhood, yeah. you know, it makes sense that they don't have the sen- the time to go after your neighbor, right? right. Um, but that's sort of like a bigger scale problem than, you know, it may- it's not even maybe they, they just don't want to. They should be spending all this time can't. harassing people and writing stupid tickets. Yeah. I mean, traffic cops and, you know, drug war and all that crazy bullshit sucks up a lot right. of their time where they could be actually doing useful stuff and, and destroys lives for no reason. And the systemic problem that, that the, that the culture of police officers defends bad cops rather than says, fuck that monster. We want him out of our ranks too. Yeah. Um, I guess I kind of get, there's probably this, this us against them kind of thing. And just for the same reason that, you know, any small, any minority community is reluctant to eject members who are getting a little fringe, you know, even sometimes very fringe, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how bad, do some people, you know, we talked with uh, Vivian a few weeks ago about TERFs, mm-hmm. you know, the, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They're probably in some feminist circles still, right? They don't get kicked out for being total dicks because it's like, well, we need all the help we can get kind of thing. I'm not sure right. what causes people to keep like people like that around. Yeah. And it is a 
dark mark on you know the feminist groups that keep those people in in their ranks but it i don't know how to how to solve that either right it, but it seems to me a similar tone of issue yeah. so don't get me wrong i i think i'm pro the ideal of cop which i think most people are mm-hmm. um, but i think there's too much of eagerness to like this is my only point i'm not making very much of a strong point if it sounds like i am i'm not my whole point is is that I think that saying all cops are evil or all, you know, it's, I think anything with the word all is too broad and there's no, um, I don't know. I think it's too harsh. Like I, you know, I've met some really cool cops. I guess the best you can say is on net, this institution is either useful or detrimental to society. The instant, I don't know how we would do without, without the institution completely, right? Right. We just div- divulge into the purge. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the trailer for the first purge, whatever, like the prequel movie, which yeah. I only saw the first purge movie. It was a fun premise. Then I saw the Rick and Morty episode. And I was like, all right, I've seen them all. Yeah. Um, but it, it's Although a, apparently the premise of the first purge is that it was used by the government as an excuse to send out cops to murder people. That's, that's true. <laughs> um, but the idea that, you know, we need to, you know, so I think that, you know, people need to well the, the purge movies are, are jokes but i do think that at some point you need the threat of like yes we will kidnap you and throw you in azkaban if you do too much bad stuff mm. that needs to loom over society because some people need those bumpers to keep them in check right um or at least enough people need that that society would collapse without that threat um i don't know why this is such a long thing that i got on on i don't know how this started sorry <laughs> it's all good all right well that was our weird digression on police and stuff i can't remember yeah. how that came around so we um, we started like resting with something. Yeah. Okay. All right. Welcome to the Beijing Conspiracy. <laughs> You've been listening for a half hour. I'm Eniash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. <laughs> Thanks for your patience. Indeed. Um, we do not have a guest this week because we figured it was a good week just to catch up with, uh, I don't know, chatting about other things, doing some, some rat picks, which we haven't done, or rat chat, and yeah, things like that. Yeah, this is what happens when another guest to like, talk to and we just right, sit there to and, keep us on track yeah like so what about that local sports team <laughs> right okay did you want to start us off um i figured i guess i don't really or have to start off material did uh, we want to like start with listener feedback this time do it all backwards sure why not as long as we're going way out of order yeah we're well, skimming through some stuff here um on the subreddit Last week, I rate. I want. I like to, you know, once in a while, toe some gentle controversy. So I was curious what this Jordan Peterson business was, and I've spent some time reading a bit more about him. Um, I still can't bring myself to watch any of his videos. I did read Scott Alexander's review of his book, The Twelve, um, The Twelve Rules for Life. Rules. Okay. And uh, Peter or Scott seems to really enjoy the book. I think Scott's kind of long-winded and hard to summarize. Which, holy shit, might be the whole point of like Peterson being hard to summarize and long-winded. Um, <laughs> All right, that gave me pause. Uh, I think Scott has a very, um, I hate to use the term mystical, but almost sort of a mystical, spiritual connection to certain intellectual things. And this just seemed to hit all the right buttons for him. He's the guy who wrote the book on, you know, the world running on Kabbalistic law and, you know, everything. You know, he he gets that level of mystical is the only word I can think of too. thinking, I think pretty intuitively. Right. So someone's making a hundred parables about hell and heaven and, you know, metaphor and then drawing all these lessons from it or something. Well, that might hit Scott perfectly. Um, For me, I'm like, all right, you don't need to do this long winded 10 minute explanation just to make your point. Uh, anyway, um, you had feedback. Yeah. I'll paraphrase real quick. I didn't go through all of these yet, but, uh, Mordina Mail, who is, uh, Matt Freeman from the awesome daily planet podcast. He co-hosts on there once in a while and he, uh, co-hosts full time. We've got ward, which I strongly recommend for everybody. 
He said that he's read 12 rules of 12 rules for life and he'll give the steel man of Peterson, which sounds actually a lot like uh, Scott Alexander's summary. I'm going to ask him if he read that, but basically the, I'll skip like what the, the, the point about from the points from the 12 rules for life and just make the general Peterson point that, um, you know, he'll give some example, you know, usually from like a story from the Bible or something, which again, just pause. Sorry, uh, Matt, but it's like, he, I still have a hard time taking any of that seriously because he, he has this whole bastardized version of truth so that he can say, oh yeah, you know, the Cain and Abel thing happened. It's true <laughs> because it's useful to have that life metaphor. Oh, fuck me. And I don't know if he said those two sentences in a row, but that is exactly the kind of thing that I think he's trying to get at. And somewhere in there, he's weaseling in the truth of his particular religion, which right. is dumb as shit. But um, anyway, he'll make some, you know, the point of Cain and Abel, which isn't just some psychopath killing his brother. You know, it's, it's the whole idea of a man who resents his brother so much that he murders him, but it resonates metaphorically with a timeless message about how it's easy to come to resent someone you should have that you should love when you feel that the universe has unjustly rewarded them and, with, and withheld your just desserts from you. Um, so like, that's a really good reading of that. And you wrote a really impacting story from the Cain and Abel thing that I really liked. Oh, you um, read that. Oh yeah. Oh cool. Years ago. All um, right. Yeah. I, I never got it published, so I didn't think you'd read it. You put it somewhere. Uh, I once asked for feedback from me possibly it was on facebook before i had the full writers group oh maybe it was yeah hey anyone want to read this and maybe help me make it better did that ever make it online no no oh well if it did people should read it but since you're hiding it then they can't so (laughs) um i thought it was fun okay and it was a different kind of take but it it made the which one killed the other person kane killed his brother Mm -hmm. it made kane's perspective really fun Mm -hmm. um so anyway not what peterson was getting at and that's a bit of a digression but i'll think about maybe Maybe putting it online at some point then. Why not? I, I think know. it was good. You thought it was good? Yeah. All right. I thought it was really cool. Okay. Well, it, 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 I mean, it was a different take, but mm-hmm. it humanized it and it made it fun. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my, since writers never know if what they actually wrote is any good or not, my uh, way of judging it is, will someone give me money for it? Hmm. And if no one gives me money for it, I'm like, obviously this isn't very good and I should hide it from the rest of the world. You could publish it in your next series of short stories. I could. And then only sell those or something. I don't know. Yeah, but then, you know, it's not that way. No one else read the story and said, this is good enough. I'll give you a few hundred dollars for the rights to publish it, you know? So. Hmm. Well, I enjoyed it okay. for what that's worth. I know that's free and doesn't, doesn't, you can't, you can't pay your, pay your, pay your mortgage oh, on, fuck, on compliments, you but <laughs> you can't fucking pay your mortgage with writing either. Are you shitting me? You can buy a few dinners. It's just, uh, it's, it's just the stamp of approval, you know? Fair enough. Since since money be is the unit of caring, that is how I know that it was good enough that if someone was willing to part with their hard earned money to to publish it, and and so it's not that the money is needed. I have this nice accounting gig. It's just that that's how I know it's actually worth something. I don't know. We talked about reading that. I know this is another aside, but that's what happens when it's just the two of us. Yeah. Um, Utopia Law that was published for oh, free. That was amazing. Well, no, 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 no. That was put online for free. Strange Horizons pays professional rates for uh, for their stories. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't pay for it and I enjoyed it. So right. Whatever, right. What, but yeah, the author I guess made money on it, so yeah. that's good because yeah. it was fun. Yeah. Um. All right. So, uh. Anyway, last side note before I get back to uh, Matt's comment, he points out that you know old stories have a lot of wisdom. Sorry. Last aside, then I'll get back to it. I challenge that assumption okay. or that assertion. Some old stories have some wisdom and some have a lot. Many of them are completely pointless and have nothing to do with anything. What is the uh, what is the wisdom in Lot fucking his daughters or <laughs> right. um, in 
you know, Jesus killing that fig tree. I'm sure somebody's made some stuff. Like there's a lot of weird, pointless shit in the Bible too, right? Yeah. Um, the whole obsession with foreskins and you know all those poor dead animals. Like the the advantage that old stories have is that everyone knows them, and so you can refer to them and then make whatever point you want. That's fair. Yeah. So it's not that they have a lot of wisdom; it's that they have a lot of shared um, inf- inferential knowledge. Everyone knows them. Right. And I think that's something that Peterson makes as a platform of his thing. Me having not read any of his stuff properly, just from what I've heard, mm-hmm. that his whole thing is like all these stories came about from humanity trying to make sense of chaos. And that's where all this stuff comes from. Okay. And in his weird bullshit sense, they're true because of that. But it's, it's mainly just, uh, you know, this is the distillation of our wisdom and it came together in these well, myths. Also the sense you got to make out of chaos when you're a sheep herding society is vastly different from the chaos that you got to make sense out of when you're a, you know, a modern interconnected world living in a city kind of, we, we have these weird economies where we go and do, what seems like pointless nothingness for our entire lives and get paid good money for it. And I'm like, I juggled numbers. Most of my life I've been juggling numbers. I do the same goddamn thing every month. And yet somehow this is valuable enough that people are like, yeah, we need you to do this. Here's a bucket of money. I'm like, okay, I I can keep doing it, but you don't feel like I just, I got done renovating my basically done. I still got a little bit left, but I got done renovating my house just very recently. Right. And that was fucking fulfilling. Because you come in here every day and there's a little bit more done. And you see the fruits of your labor every time you come home. Yeah. Yeah. There's paint on the walls now where there was shit on the walls earlier. There's hardwood floor down where before it was carpet that had been peed on, you know? And just like you make the world around you better and you can see it. Whereas when you're just toiling away at the office job, it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Maybe we're the target demographic for Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Because I think, I mean, from what I got from Scott Alexander's review is that it helps you do that more in your life okay. if, if you're the kind of person that, that you can get wisdom from that. So um, anyway, Matt says that Peterson does this a lot. He pulls some psychologically resonant moral out of a biblical story or fairy tale and then shows how that explains some bizarre facet of human behavior. And generally he's right, or at least the explanation feels sufficiently plausible. Perhaps this is because every time he uses a story to highlight a new flavor of human evil, you automatically reflect on yourself Um and see that you've absolutely been there and you've absolutely seen that evil. And the conscious recognition of that rejection of evil is a step, is a step toward like Scott Alexander recognized being a better person. So like then in parentheses here, he's got, there's a level that this book is therapy forcing you to go beyond the abstract. Yes. People sure do have a lot of evil in them that tends to create their own suffering to here are six times in my life. I've created a hell for myself through lack of moral conviction. Um, the 12 rules are practically banal and almost all translate into literal platitudes. Take care of yourself, pursue meaning, not happiness. Uh, take responsibility for yourself. Hold others responsible for their actions or they won't respect you. Don't lie. Fix your own life before you presume to fix others or before you try to get political. Or like Scott pointed out, you know, suffering's bad. <laughs> so fairly standard, almost stereotypical advice to expect from a stern father figure. But Peterson makes you understand or at least feel that you fail to live up to these seemingly simple basic guidelines of moral behavior then you're complicit in the construction of your own personal hell. Uh, because life is suffering in chaos, it's only through diligence and effort that you can steer your soul through it and find meaning and order, and there's something deep within people that simultaneously doesn't want to hear that and deeply needs to. I mean, maybe his book does that, but from what I saw of his you know, interviews and other videos that I saw, he does not do that in person. So one thing that I can say from still having not read any of his stuff, and I'm, 
I've talked earlier with with Enosh that I'm a pretty slow reader, and the Twelve Rules might be pretty low on my bucket on my on my list. But honestly, I'm getting enough good reviews from it from people like Scott Alexander and David and uh, and Matt that like maybe I need to read this book. So maybe I'll check it out. Generally, self help book books read pretty fast too. Mm, yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure how big it is, or if it's even classically a self-help book and i imagine i'll find all the if he's half as long-winded of a writer as he is a talker then it's going to drive me nuts <laughs> yes um but maybe he's more i think scott alexander said maybe he just has a good editor so um yeah it's uh at the very least i've been given more pause now i've got two data points of people that i know personally whose intellects i trust who think that there's a lot to be gleaned here i'll notice matt that you dodged the question of is peterson a cool dude you just talked about his books so um <laughs> thanks for that if you want to weigh in on that uh wait, oh, wait. why do we care if he's a cool dude or not because like he he i think he first came into public prominence through like challenging canada's law that um that through a fairly understandable interpretation you could be held as hate speech by not calling somebody by their preferred pronouns. Okay. And he's against that. Okay. Um, so he's like, no, I'm not going to let someone, you know, basically control my thoughts and actions through being a bully. Yeah. Um, I don't think, and to be charitable, I don't think that he thinks that is the intention of most people wanting non gendered pronouns for themselves, but it is the kind of language weapon that is employed in totalitarian things. And like Alexander points out in his thing, he, you know, there's a, big kind of running joke that he's afraid of this, you know, you know, neo postmodernist Marxist conspiracy taking over the world kind of thing. So this is the kind of weapon they would employ. Well, I also really dislike, I mean, I know this comes up a lot, but these laws that are basically never enforced except for when the government wants to fuck someone for whatever reason. And then there's the fact that everyone is committing all these felonies all the time and you can't help it because fucking everything is illegal now. It's just, we had another one of those. Yeah, but I mean, this was this was expanding the definition of hate speech. Yeah. Which, I mean, it wasn't like a whole new cloth law. It was just like, nope, hate speech is, you know, calling someone a faggot and not calling them their preferred pronouns or something, right? Right. I'm assuming that yeah. wasn't exactly how it was written in the law, but something like that, right? Well, it's kind of hard to accidentally call someone a faggot too. Whereas Did I say accidentally? The, no, oh, no. But whereas oh, see, using yeah. the wrong pronouns quite easy to do accidentally i think insistently refusing okay maybe okay. right um so like you know there's a person at my work who prefers they them pronouns mm -hmm. and uh you know if my if their boss was like insistent on calling them a gendered one and they were like can you not and they insisted mm -hmm. something that, that that boss is being a huge dick right yeah i think yeah. we could all agree but boss is an asshole. i think that the whole point of this like adding this and i don't i don't have a position on this canada law it's probably a bad idea i don't like restricting free speech either but I can't relate with this person who doesn't like gender pronouns because I don't have, I think I've talked about a sense of gender at all. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's like not being able to see a color that other people can see. I just, I don't have a, I don't have it on my radar. Which I've been talking more and more to people and this seems to be a very common thing in the rationalism sphere. I don't know. Is there anyone in the rationalist society who has a gender that they feel strongly? I don't know. Okay. I, I haven't talked about it with very many people, but for the f few that I have, all of them are like, yeah, I guess I'm, kind of cis because that's just how i was born but like i haven't i haven't met anyone who is who actually identifies with their gender yet i thought cis was your sexuality or no that's i, I don't know yeah, yeah no um, cis is your gender yes yeah there's, straight is your sexuality that's another thing too is i was at a coffee shop once and i overheard like these you know excited college girls taking you know some humanities studies class and it was like gender studies or something and they're like oh my god we just learned about like the 27 different genders that there are and i'm like i have no idea what you guys are talking about <laughs> right. there are like 27 that sounds like you know 
I, I wonder how different they could all be. She's like, I could get that there are two colors that I can't see or something. Mm. Are there 27 different colors I can't see? Maybe, yeah. but that's a lot. So um, I'm guessing it's just, you know, different expressions of this thing I don't have. Maybe it's like a sense of smell and they can smell all the things and I can't smell any of them. So I can't even relate to the one thing that they're talking about. But anyway, the other thing with, with my perception of Peterson. So like that, aside from the fact that he has... I couldn't find good citations. I, although I did find a couple, they were in the uh, comments of the Slate Star Codex post of the review on um, 12 Rules for Life that like the university wrote him a letter saying, look, we've had a lot of kids complain that you wouldn't like address them by their proper, pro- by their preferred pronouns. And uh, you know, you're making them uncomfortable. You know, who cares if they feel like they're being coddled or whatever, or if you feel like they're being coddled, like it's respect them. That's what they want. And we're not asking you, you know, to, you know, do a lot, just, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if I constantly mispronounced your name mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, what I if I called, I can't think of a good way to do it, mm-hmm. but like, or if you called me Steve and I prefer Steven right, right. and it bugged me a little, it's like, yeah. it doesn't take that much for you to add that N. Yeah. In fact, at some point you're doing it to be a dick. <laughs> right. So like knock it off, yeah. especially if you're a teacher. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, apparently he didn't want to stand down to that. And I don't know the full context on all that. Um, as far as I know, uh, if someone can point me to a source where someone is like, yeah, I'm one of those students and he was a complete shithead to me, point that out to me. I'd be curious to see it. I didn't find anything quite like that, but that and the fact that he seems to give, you know, people that a lot of us don't like, you know, like alt-right Nazi style people, a lot of ammunition mm-hmm. and be like, here's this intellectual who says a lot of the things that I agree with. And, uh, you know, I, um, well, let me, let me, let me, let me caveat, a, let me caveat that because okay. you can, you can have that about, you know, people I do respect like yeah, Sam yeah, Harris. Exactly. Um, so like, uh, I don't think you can be uh, held morally accountable for some of the people that agree with some of the things you say. But if you're getting a large following of people, you know, if I suddenly got a lot of friends in the alt-right, I'd mm-hmm. wonder if I'm saying the right thing, right. right? If I found people holding up quotes, with, I don't, I'm making this up, but maybe there are people, you know, if someone's holding up a quote with something some that I said at one of these rallies, they'd be like, I should take a step back to self-evaluate. That's not how I want to be inspiring, right? Okay. And I, so far as I know, he's not stepping away from that. Um, I think he's decried it, but he also spends a lot of time decrying the left, like is also popular. So, well, I mean, I'm kind of worried because I am in favor of eugenics, not in the murdering people way, but in the uh, making the babies that we have in the future have better genes, you know, and there's a lot of people in the horrible positions that are also fans of eugenics. And I, I, I would not want someone to judge me harshly just because I'm saying that this thing of, of having of getting rid of, you know, genes that fuck people's lives and bodies over is a good thing, which I do think it is a good thing. I would hate to have people associate negative things with me because the Nazis also say that. Yeah, that's true. And I, I don't really know what to say there. I guess, you know, um, someone could take Harris's criticism of Islam and be like, there, here's, here's our, our well-respected intellectual who is also anti-Muslim. And I'm going to run with that out of context. Yeah. I think the hard part is I'm trying to find things in context and he's also notoriously hard to quote, which I find super annoying. So um, Peterson, yeah, yeah, it's because he doesn't ever say anything that makes it lick a sense. Yeah. So I, th- <laughs> um, I think I'm trying to read through Matt's comment as we're talking. This next one here, that I'm, as we're talking, and I'm trying to see if he's defending Peterson or just the book. Um, a little bit. Oh, I, I do have a uh, question here, Matt. Um, you said that Peterson would never claim that religious people don't do horrible things. I could have sworn that someone told me or I read somewhere that religious people who do terrible things aren't really religious and atheists who do good things are, ba- are really religious. 
um, that he, he equates religiosity with doing the good thing, whether or not you profess a belief in religion. I could be wrong there, so I want to learn more about that. I don't know why we're spending so much time on on Jordan Peterson. I'm just the whole phenomenon is kind of kind of curious to me because, like I said, my my first impression was that this guy was a crank, and I had no idea why anyone would take him seriously. Mm. And then I met smart people I know in real life who who I respect, and they're like, "Oh no, there's something to him. Check him out." And I'm like, "Okay, well, given that I'm a slow reader, do I really want to dedicate 30 hours to reading his book?" Right. But I'm now toying with the idea that I might. So we'll see. Could make for an interesting episode. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Give me six months. I'm yeah. a very slow reader. Speaking about controversial laws and restricting freedoms and such. Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. Really quick. I don't mean to interrupt. Uh, Operation Question gave us a link to a five-minute video, which I haven't watched yet. I just found it. I should read these before I come here. It's been a weird week. We asked for a short video, mm. and uh, apparently there's a five-minute one. I will check that out. Do you want to pause and just watch it right now? Do you want to? Sure. All right. We're pausing. Right. BRB. All right, we're recording. We'll link that video. Steven, you have thoughts? Yeah, a few. Uh, first and most shallow, he doesn't look what I thought he would sound like, or he doesn't look like he, I thought he would look from his voice. Oh, you haven't seen him before. I think I have, but I haven't seen him and seen him talk. I've seen his picture before, and I've heard him on the I heard him on Sam Harris's podcast. Okay. But he sounds older than he looks, and he looks like in this video, he's dressed like in a suit and stuff. He looks like he would sound more like the most interesting man in the world from those old commercials. Okay. And instead, he sounds like this kind of like, you know, old guy. It was interesting. Yeah. That was obviously not the content of the video. Stay so, thirsty, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the video is basically the, it's titled clean up your room. And his, his, his point is, is that, you know, the first thing you can start doing to like, what was his word for it? Um, stop doing what you know is wrong and do better for yourself. The first thing you can do is literally clean up your room. Yeah. Literally clean your room. It's an, ex- it's an expression of yourself. It's your environment, that sort of thing. That might be a simple instruction that, you know, might be more original, but the idea that like, you know, you're struggling with becoming a better person and self-actualizing, it's not a lot to me like, you know, what Islam teaches about like the internal jihad, you know, the struggle against yourself and, and, uh, you know, your, your base, your, your, your acrasia versus self-actualization or something, right? Or maybe what, you know, Eastern traditions are more about like enlightenment or self-fulfilling or something, you know, why aren't we doing that? I don't know. If, if maybe this is someone's first exposure to that idea, it sounds pretty, pro- it is profound. It's not, you know, I don't think he's claiming it for his own either, but um, I also found that per- fairly, you know, intelligent sounding and, and worth five minutes watching. I think everyone should check it out if they're at all interested in this dude. I still don't get the love for him. Like, yes, that's good advice. And I also strongly back it, but um, I don't, I don't see him as like a prophet. I don't know I, if he managed to inspire some people to start cleaning up their room, then I guess it was worth it and it's a good video for them because I mean that that really is good life advice I literally just, and metaphorically to clean up the room and you know yeah well it, start the, with the literally yeah and the, the other thing he advocates is like in this short video is to stop saying things that you know aren't true right or that make you feel bad saying it but again and, like like Matt was saying that's really banal common advice I guess like some people just like his presentation and if that's what works for you, then yeah, sure. Go for, go for it. Maybe the long winded version of that thing is actually inspiring enough to get you to do it. Okay. Like, I mean, one thing that I've come to realize over the last few years that like that stopped me from being more successful early on and like quote successful. Cause I just started like my, I've just passed a year at my first real job and I'm 28 is like, just stop in, in the, the words of the great philosopher Shia LaBeouf, just mm-hmm. do it. I believe he got that from Nike. <laughs> <laughs> he delivered it in that flexing TED talk. Okay. Um, 
If you haven't seen that TED talk, don't bother, but watch two seconds of it. He just says, just do it over and over. It's very funny. Um, don't let your dreams be dreams. But uh, it strikes me that there's a certain kind of audience. You told me once that um, Atlas Shrugged was a very formative and important book to you at the time that you needed it in your life, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't recommend reading it. Right. So maybe this is like that. I said people would recommend reading it for Peterson. Like, I don't know how much I could glean from this. Although if Alexander gleaned something from it, I probably could. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think, unless it goes wider, right over my head. But I could think of people who could literally start in the place of like clean up your room, and you know they, I, you know I have people I know who who feel disorganized and like they're trying to figure their stuff out. Hey, this might be the kind of book that this person needs. I don't know. Um, I'm not talking about you. No, uh, no. I'm looking at you and I'm saying it. Yeah, 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 I understand. I kind of, I don't know. I get the feeling that this is one of those things everyone needs to find out for themselves. And most people, when they find it out for themselves, get a push from some external source like a Peterson or something. And so even though it sounds like banal to most people, the people who get it right then when they need it which is everyone at some point in their life really latch onto that person who helped deliver it at that point. And I think this is another one of those frustrating fucking things about aging and dying because this, this shit takes some time to learn. Like nobody knows at the beginning of their life how to get things done and that keeping your room clean is actually important and that getting enough sleep is really important. It's shit that you find out through the long suffering process of going through life and being shitty at things and slowly getting less shitty. And then once you start learning that stuff, you get old and you die. And the next generation has to learn it all fucking over again. And it's this continual treadmill. And I don't know, but people say like, well, why don't you learn from your elders or something? I think that is such bullshit. No one in their lives has ever learned anything from their elders. (laughs) The elders just gave them that push right when they were about to learn it themselves. Uh, like like Peterson, you know, and I guess that's good that if he, if he's fulfilling that role for a number of people who don't have anyone else in their life to fulfill it for them, and maybe he's one of those people that like says you know sane or mostly good things seventy five percent of the time, and twenty five percent of it is that kind of fringe and like I wish he wouldn't say that so much, <laughs> right? But this stuff, this stuff's cool. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's this guy. All right, I think i'm moved i will try i'll at least read more of his stuff and watch some of his stuff maybe he has some essays i could read that'd be nice but i might actually read this book i'll put it on my list well i can't put it on my list of 100 books i will make a point if to try and read it soon yeah well i mean the list the bottom of the list never gets read so it's all about where you're putting it on the list the top of my list takes eight months to get around <laughs> to like cracking the cover and then i get tired so all right i i have a list of tv shows i gotta watch and the Twin Peaks is slowly inching closer to the top of that list, so I might uh, actually watch that sometime this tell year. Tell Rachel when you start it. She'll love it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. She okay. might even... If you, In fact, if you watch it, I'll give it a shot with you. Okay. Um, I watched the first episode once, and I could not get into it, because I... This was years ago, before I had any sense at all of, like, I don't know, cinematography or, like, mm-hmm. you know, diff, non-traditional storytelling. Yeah. And that's very much what this is. Yes. The director... Apparently, like, everything he does is like this. I was talking yeah, with Lynch, a friend he's once. he's amazing. Yeah. So, you know... You saw Fight Club, right? Yeah. Oh, you didn't like Fight Club? I get I get kickback on this every time. <laughs> I I liked parts of Fight Club. Uh-huh. I thought that it was fun. It was this cool kind of like, you know, undertake, you know, a lot of parts of it were cool. Mm-hmm. Mainly I hated the end. Okay. So like at the end, if you haven't seen Fight Club, skip 30 seconds. Um, he shoots himself in the face to mm-hmm. kill Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And then he's talking with his girlfriend and holding her hand and watching the world burn or whatever. Yeah. 
and talking with like this raspy voice. Uh-huh. Like, so I'm thinking if you shot yourself in the face, you'd be dead. <laughs> Right, he managed or, to miss all the important parts. So he really did shoot himself. Is how that ended. That's what I. That's yeah. how someone. So my my issue was that I, for years, I hated this movie because I was like, so he metaphorically shot himself in the head or shot himself in the face to kill Brad Pitt, right. but he's still talking with a rasp like he actually did damage with the gun. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, so did he do it or not? Like, did I he, think he just did, did he, a shitty did he, job of it. Did he did he shoot Brad Pitt? Did he shoot himself in the face to kill Brad Pitt? Like he got in a fist fight with Brad Pitt and he just did it psychologically? In that case, why is he bleeding and have a rasp? Like, mm-hmm. what the fuck's going on here? Mm-hmm. So the answer that the the second person say this is like, he actually did. He just survived. Yeah. And he survived enough to talk and stand around and not be like, I need to go to the hospital now. He's dead. Well, this is a guy that's like, been fighting himself and not realizing it. You can't he could tank a bullet from that. <laughs> no, but, but he could like easily think that he's blowing his own brains out and actually have the gun pointing like out his cheek or something, you know? Oh, so the raspiness wasn't because he shot himself in the mouth or like through the, I, I thought that he shot himself in the back of the head, or, like through the mouth to the back right, of the well, head. I mean, that's, uh, that's obviously what he thought he did too, because you see him putting the gun in his mouth, but since he survived and seems to be just kind of bleeding with the raspy voice, he must have not shot himself that well. So the raspiness might be him gurgling on blood, not on him talking through broken vocal cords that he shot with a gun. <laughs> right. See, I was under the impression that he either survived the gunshot that would have, you know, blown the head off of the rest of us and killed us mm-hmm. through movie magic because reasons, or he didn't actually shoot himself. He just did it in his head, but then why is he rasping? So that all was right. all right. That's how I took the end. All right. The movie was fine. Okay. Twin peaks is weird. That's my impression. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll be willing to check it out. Well, I think, you know, moving past all this Peterson business, I think that I'm sold enough to check it out. Yeah. So that was fun. Thanks yeah. for engaging me so much on that. And I, We'll have David on in a while. I'm sure Peterson will come up because he's one of the other same people that I know who likes him. Maybe by that time, I'll have read some of his stuff. So, yeah, I think he's a fan, but some of Peterson's popularity among groups of people that we're not huge fans of has given him pause. Okay. Not to like throw his character out, but I'm paraphrasing to kind of do away with some of that like idol worship stuff. Yeah. I think, and I can't remember if David said this or not, he kind of found Peterson's stuff kind of right when he needed to hear it. Yeah, yeah. And, I totally get it. You know, it'd be weird if people were running around quoting Yudkowsky at alt-right rallies and I don't know how I would process that information. Right. I'd be like, all right, I got to step back and assess. I don't see how you possibly could though. Let's find a quote that we can put under a picture of the Tiki tortures and hey, not just, put that online. Just laugh. I mean, he's, he's got such a, his writing just comes, has such joy in it. It's just this aura that you can't associate with alt-right. Yeah, that's fair. And you can do sound bites of Harris that you totally could put on a, on a poster. So yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, that was interesting. Thanks everybody. All right. Sorry to have engaged us for so long on side notes. I wanted to talk about, unless you've got other stuff, but you, you talked about, you sent me that link for, um, that Google AI assistant. Yeah, but uh, there is one listener feedback I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, this is from Zika Ron and this is on the getting schooled episode. He says, at first I agreed with Ineash because he said a few words that made me think we were thinking the same thing, but the more I listened, the less I agreed. I thought he was going more in the direction of Paul Graham's thoughts. And then here he quotes Paul Graham. Public school teachers are in much the same position as prison wardens. Wardens' main concern is to keep the prisoners on the premises. They also need to keep them fed and as far as as possible prevent them from killing one another. Beyond that, they want to have as little to do with the prisoners as possible, so they leave them to create whatever social organization they want. From what I've read, the society that the prisoners create is warped, savage, and pervasive. It is no fun to be at the bottom of it. In outline, it was the same at the schools I went to. The most important thing was to stay on the premises. While there, the authorities fed you, prevented, 
prevented overt violence and made some effort to teach you something. But beyond that, they didn't want to have too much to do with the kids. Like prison wardens, the teachers mostly left us to ourselves. And like prisoners, the culture we created was barbaric. Paul even brings up how pre-industrial young adults spent their time happily in apprenticeship, which Inyash thinks is a solution. That or letting kids drop out. I'm not sure what great results he's expecting from that, though. Inyash, what do you think America will look like if we allow students to drop out? What good things will come of this? Do you have any experience with alternative students that are working to get a GED outside of the general public education system? Yeah, Inyash. <laughs> All right. So I read that because uh, I very much agree with um, that Paul Graham essay. And I think part of the problem, I wasn't feeling very good about that schooling episode when we were done with it because I think I was trying to tackle too much in one episode. Uh, one of the things that I was wanting to uh, to touch on was that uh, the schooling doesn't seem to provide us very much in, in terms of what we want in educational outcomes. But the other thing I wanted very much to say was exactly what Paul Graham had said, because that was very much on my mind as well. And I think I actually sent that uh, that link to Zeke, or maybe maybe we stumbled across it independently. But in either case, um, which link? The the one the Paul Graham essay. Oh yeah, that was um, why nerds are unpopular. Yes, and I read that this week. It was pretty fun. Yeah, it's it's all of his essays are pretty damn good. But yeah, that was that was one of my favorites of his in the top three. And I think I kind of conflated two separate things in that episode and therefore didn't hit on either one as thoroughly as I would have liked to. And I think I did a disservice to both of them as a result. But yeah, very much of my... And the fact that we had a teacher on didn't help things because the teacher kind of has a... a, How are you going to tell someone that you're friends with that I kind of think your job is acting a lot like a prison warden and not caring about how these kids conduct themselves because I, I very much had the same experience that I think this is true in, in prisons as well. And in, um, in old, um, uh, what is it? The, 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 the court societies of the Kings and such where there is nothing you can do to contribute to society in a meaningful way. So all status is reduced to sniping at each other and pecking and just, you know, who can you tear down and how can you make yourself look cooler? But there's literally nothing you can do of value to make yourself more valuable to society. So it degenerates into these awful social dynamics that are just toxic for everyone. And I think that is a lot of what school is. And the reason I, I did want to, the reason I um, promoted letting kid not forcing kids to go to school anymore is because Partly that would help with the whole prison warden thing. If you aren't forced to be there, it's less prison-like. And the teachers don't have it as one of their main jobs to keep you on the premises, right? They can concentrate on actually doing things they want to do, like teach people. And if someone is not wanting to be taught, they can just get the fuck out right then. And also, I think it would help prevent this social dynamic from getting going, where kids are bored, they have nothing to do, there's nothing they can do to be valuable and so they form these awful societies of destroying each other and that that is mainly why i was promoting that because i was one of the kids that really liked school and liked the learning aspect of school and i would have preferred it if those people simply were not in school so i admit it is kind of self-serving of me to be like get those disruptive asshole people out of here we don't need them anyway i mean a lot of my childhood not i mean 
I don't know if a lot is conveying the right amount. A portion of my childhood was spent, you know, dodging bullies and being careful around, you know, mean kids and that sort of thing. And those kids probably didn't want to be at school. And yeah. if they weren't there, I could have focused a lot more on other stuff. Yeah. I think the kids who don't want to be there make it worse for everyone else by a large amount. Yeah. Which is why I want them out of there. Um, my aunt, who is a joyful and, you know, I think happy and fulfilled person who likes her job, I think that she, I, our uh, Audrey, was that her name? Yes. Um, I, I called her Autumn for like the first half of the podcast. I felt like a dick. Audrey didn't, I don't saw a prison. I don't think she saw a prison guard as part of her job title. No. Whereas I think my aunt totally does. And she's like, yeah, those bastards need to be kept in check. I think is what she might say. Okay. But I say, I preface that she, you know, is a joyful person who likes her job because that's also true. Okay. But I think she, she's also like, well, as long as they're here, yeah, we need this discipline and we need to keep these guys in line because, you know, they're, they're making a, they're making it hard on all the kids who want to be here, which the fact that I phrased it that way, and I think the fact that I can plausibly imagine her or another teacher saying it that way, they're making it hard on the kids who want to be here, kind of illustrates your whole point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yeah, they they don't want to be here. They're making things hard on, on everybody else as a result, and that's bringing down the whole system a lot. Yeah. And I would like for teachers to get more involved in their kids' lives and actually, you know, want to be involved with the kids and can be a force for social good when there is a breakdown in the society that kids are creating. Yeah. And anecdotally, because they do try to keep themselves separate. You don't want to get mixed up in the kids shit, you know? Yeah. But well, and also once you're part have... of that society and they can look to you as a no- normal person, you don't feel as bad getting involved in their lives. It's not like these are the wards that are in my charge that the parents have, you know, entrusted me with ensuring their safety it's like these are my friends my short dumb friends but <laughs> my friends nonetheless and so i will get involved and help yeah and occasionally there are teachers who do that sort of thing and it's heroic and it's awesome but mm-hmm. it shouldn't be the odd heroic incident it should be all the time i see that yeah. and you know part of the problem too is you know i'm not one of those like small classrooms are better but yet when it's 30 to 1 and you as a teacher know the names of 200 students because that's how many you teach a day because they're all running through your classes all the time, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have the time to know their life story and help them with every little thing and get rid of their bullies and that sort of thing. But I can say anecdotally, um, and this probably speaks to the point of volunteering to go to school. When I, was, I went to community college before I went to CSU and at both of those, and it's, I think even more so at community college because there was a much higher percentage of population there who didn't come right out of high school. I went there because it was uh, like a third the price for the same education. And people, you know, you don't get the same esteemed credentials, but you get the same textbooks. Mm-hmm. And um, that's my pitch for community college. You know, mm-hmm. if, you're, if your goal is to learn, you get it for a third of the price and you can use those credits at a, at a university and get your, you know, your bachelor's or whatever. I am more and more under the opinion that college isn't there for what you learn. It's for the connections you make, which is why you probably want to go to the more expensive ones. And for the credentials. Well, and yeah. for the credentials, you, you but I mean, letters, you can put you your put first letters two years in community college and then trans- yeah. transfer. But I, if you're there for the connections you make, you want to go with the, where the most valuable connections are going to be. That could be. Because you learn the same stuff in either way, but the people that you're around and that you form bonds with are different. And that is, that is one thing I didn't know about college that I wish I would have known. Like, I stayed in my room and I did studying and stuff. And what I should have been doing is, well, for the one semester that I was actually doing college. What I should have been doing is being out there and making connections with people. Well, for what it's worth, I didn't make any friends in college either. I made like two friends that I'm still in touch with. And, uh, I also don't do what I studied at CSU. So, um, (laughs) I can, I can support the idea that my lack of networking didn't do anything for me. But you know, if you're, if your goal is to get a job in Denver, 
you know, going to Harvard, you're not going to make a lot of friends there who probably can get you a job in Denver, but maybe some. Well, if you go to Harvard, you're not the kind of person who needs to get a job. You're the kind of person who needs to know people in high political offices and in the high up in the business world because you are part of the ruling class. Well, <laughs> I'll pull the brakes on that before I make one other point <laughs> and just point out that my significant other went to Columbia. Okay. And you know, is the kind of person who wants a job and, you know, isn't this, you know, high echelon of society person. Um, she went there because on a, on a lark, she applied there and she got turned down from CSU for her master's degree, probably because CSU wants to get out of state people because they pay twice as much mm. and they do it under the guise of like, Oh, we want to bring new ideas in or whatever, but it's really probably about the money. And Columbia said, yes. Stephen so. suddenly became really cynical. No, I think that's, I think it's, it'd be, weirdly rosy eyed of me not to acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, Money probably has something to do with it. It probably has almost everything to do with it. (laughs) If not explicitly everything other than the fact that they can't say it. Right. So they have to do just enough beyond, you know, to, to, to make paying lip service not seem like a complete, you know, farce. But anyway, Rachel's not the person you're talking about, sir. So you, okay, okay, no, all right. But the, when I went to, uh, especially at, at Front Range Community College in Fort Collins, there weren't—I don't remember any bullies. There are people mm-hmm. there who came. The, the, That's—I love the feel of a of a school mm-hmm. of a uh, of an academy style school, Plato-ish, mm-hmm. where people are coming there because they want to learn. Yeah, there was none in college either when I went to college. Yeah, because that's what's. I mean, there's probably you know jocks and jerks or whatever, but I didn't meet them at CSU either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're much more of like the you know. I'm here and I'm 19, let's have fun. And much less of like, I'm here to learn. But I got a lot of that at Front Range and, and some of that at CSU. But the, um, the idea that they're, they're there on purpose, that they're not there because they're forced to be, mm-hmm. that really did cut down a lot of difference. these problems. Yeah. And, you know, adults might try and say, I say adults like we're not old. Um, <laughs> but uh, the adults who run schools and stuff might be like, well, that's because they're older and they're not going through puberty or whatever. But Paul Graham hits that in that essay pretty well that, you know, hormones aren't this monster that turns you into, you know, this, this sad psychopath. It's really the assholes that are surrounding you that do that to you. And I think he's absolutely right. I mean, no doubt. I remember having anger issues in my teens and stuff. And that was probably something with, you know, your body's changing and you know, whatever, (laughs) but the voluntary aspect did add a lot. And I wonder what Zeke's thought was, would be to compare from his uh, primary education to his college education there. Yeah. Um, and if that is really just a maturity aspect or if they're more mature because they can't afford to be because there's less bullies for them to guard against. Although there is something to be said for the fact that maybe it does train people to punch the clock and keep a shitty job that's just as bad as high school. Oh, yeah. That part is still definitely on the table. Yeah. Um, you know, and at work you have bullies off. I mean, you know, less overt. I don't get beat up at my job. Right. I don't even really get bullied, right. but, um, but back when I, you had shittier are, jobs. Yeah, that's true. But I do work with somebody who has been bullied at his job hmm. considerably to the point where, uh, no one at work listens to this. No one will put it together. Cause I, I know the names of like half my coworkers on my floor and there's like a hundred. So no one knows who I'm talking about. They went to HR to report this person because it's oh. been going on for months. And they're like, you know, I get, anxious when I get up from my desk and I have to walk by their desk to get to the door. Shit. And I'm like, that is exactly the time you should be going to HR and having them step in and do stuff because you're describing, you know, workplace harassment. You can't, you can't do, you can't be at work without feeling uncomfortable. That's fucking insane. So it happens. And you know, maybe the fact that maybe he was bullied in school and that's why he's able to put off, you know, complaining to the teachers for almost a year at this place. And I put that in quotes, uh, guy's a great guy. He did the right thing. Yeah. The domestication aspect, you know, maybe also keeps you from, shutting down at the first sign of trouble you know you can just put up and shut up and do your things so mm-hmm. we can't we can't ignore the domestication aspect of it but as far as making it suck a little less there's still ways to do that too so 
Yeah, what did, did you, if you did it, I might have been skimming the um, the other feedback. Um, the first part of, of Zeke's question, you know, what do you imagine they would do, the kids who didn't want to go to school? Did you touch more on that? No, I mean, I, I think it would be better for the kids that are in school. For the ones that aren't, then I there's just this whole issue where I don't know what to do with... Because they don't want to go to school. Yeah. And they probably don't want to be productive members of society either. But even if they did, but with, there's not enough low there's not enough low level jobs for them to all stay busy. Right. But at the same time, and they're not doing anyone any favors by being at school. So yeah. if they're gonna if they're gonna, you know, be at home and be I'm sorry to put words in your mouth, you tell me if I'm putting the wrong ones in there, but I imagine it's like if they're not gonna be productive and helpful at school, let them be unproductive and unhelpful at home away from everybody. Yes. At the very at the very worst, right? Yeah. So like, you know, at the at the very at the end of the day, what's what happens? you stay unproductive and unhelpful and the rest of us get to flourish. Yeah. You weren't going to go anywhere anyway. You're a bully. And right. don't get me wrong. Bullies turn around life with caveats, et cetera. But for the person going to school, like I can't wait to be a dick today. Let them not go to school that day and see how well everyone else turns out. Yeah. And I, yes, I, I think of, there are quite a few countries where going to school is viewed as a privilege and they're very poor countries and the schools there generally suck. And yet they don't have these, these behavioral problems. The kids that do go to those schools are happy to be there because they know it's their way out of being, you know, Maybe. It, it's, 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 their, it's what our parents, our parents, people my age ish told me, call, you know, school and college would be, it's your yeah. way to like actually get your life good. Yeah. You need to do well. And you know, why do you have to go to school, Steven? Cause it sucks so much. Well, you have to go because it's your doorway to college and unless you have a better life than we had. And, and so, it, but for many people in the world, that's actually true. And it feels, I don't know. It also feels shitty to say that because then what we're dooming those people that drop out of school to a life in poverty or something. And I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I can't be responsible for everyone, especially the people that are shitty. You know, imagine if more Elon Musk's came around because they were bullied less in school and their spirits weren't broken. Right. How much faster the world would be saved. And then all the, all the bully problems would also be solved. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> we can bring the singularity on faster. If there were fewer bullies, <laughs> I'm not sure how true that is. It's getting late. Speaking of Elon Musk and saving the world, do we want to touch on that AI assistant, the Google one? Yeah, which was not Elon Musk, but... No, yeah. but it's saving the world style stuff, yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe. Maybe, is it? I don't we'll, know. I don't we'll, know where you want to go with this. You just sent me the video. I did. No, we'll, we'll post the, this video as well, but it's basically of uh, a Google uh, voice assistant type thing where you tell, your, you tell your computer, hey, make me a haircut, uh, get me an appointment for a haircut Saturday between 10 and 12. And this, this assistant just calls up a haircutting place near you and with a completely natural sounding human voice is like, hi, I'd like to book a, a haircutting appointment for my client. And it like stutters and says, um, and stuff and sounds just like a human, you know? And the person on the other line went and took down the information and thought that there was a person they were talking to. And the, the person doing the demo on stage got a haircutting appointment booked for them. And it was really awesome because it sounded just like a normal person. Yeah. The, you know, there was the occasional like small pause where they'd be like, you know, what time? Or, you know, I'm sorry, we're, we're booked at one. Okay, well, I'm good anytime between 10 and two. Yeah. So uh, what did you think about this Google Assistant thing? My thought was, is that I wish I had prepped by watching, prepped for this question by watching like the announcement for Siri mm. when Apple first announced that. Because I don't know if they went way above and beyond what Siri could do. And you know, 10 years later, however long it's been, it still sucks. Right. I still often can't get it to call the person I want to call, which uh. I mean... 
don't get me wrong, that's a really cool problem to have that my robot won't, you know, make my phone call immediately for me so I can, you know, talk to somebody a thousand miles away in a second. Like, you know, that's not, not to bitch on like that level of problem, <laughs> but um, I'm curious if they oversold it. So like if this thing works as advertised, that's fucking insane. Yeah. And on Google, it's going to roll out for free and everybody who wants one can have one. Did you hear what happened almost immediately afterwards? Nope. So there was a bit of a backlash about people being like, this is kind of creepy and unethical and we, we don't want this. And Google like almost the next day, like walked it back. and was like, Oh no, we would, we would never use this to just trick people into thinking they're talking to a human. We'd always say, hi, this is Google assistant or something like that. And I was like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Cause on the one hand, I don't see why it matters as a user of Google assistant. I'm like, if you think you're talking to a human, that's great. But on the other hand, if I was, when I, when I call and I, um, you know, get those, those robo answering menus that you got to push your buttons through and like, say this, if you want this, I, I don't have any consideration at all for the computer because I know it's not a person and I can just be annoyed at it and, and be jerky to it. Basically, it doesn't matter. Whereas if there's a human on the other line, then right away, there's a level of compassion and empathy that I feel, I guess... I believe the word Vivian used for it was emotional labor. When I have another human on the line, I put forward emotional labor to help make them comfortable and to work with them in a level that I never would with a computer. And so I kind of feel like I have done that labor for nothing <laughs> if it's a computer on the other end. At the very least, you fostered the kind of person that you want to be to actual people. No. So it's not necessarily wasted effort. It's just like exercise, right? Rather than actually lifting something. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, my thought was sort of that, but I took it the other direction in that, like, you know, if I'm making the hair appointment or making an appointment for a haircut or rather, um, if I'm taking the appointment for the haircut, mm -hmm. the person who calls me isn't really a person They're They're like, as far as I'm concerned, they're, yeah. they're a potential customer. Do you want this or not? When do you, you know, here's our availability. When do you want to come in? Yeah. It's, it's not like, oh my God, you're Steven. You're, I want to talk to you. What's your life story? It's like, no, fuck it. You're here to get your haircut. Let's get your haircut. And when you go to, you know, you're making the appointment. They're doing it's the same thing in reverse. They're mm -hmm. not a person. They're a person. They're they're a tool for you to get a haircut mm -hmm. or to, to to get the first steps to getting one set up. Yeah. Um. Don't, don't get me wrong. Service people are people. I've yes, been in yes. service. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that it's like you know you go to you go to the coffee shop. The person at the counter is a person that you should care about. But right then they're a means to coffee. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know how how useful it would be. I don't, I don't think it'd be bad to say this is a Google Assistant. I'm scheduling an appointment for Steven Zuber. And I mean, what if it wasn't a Google Assistant? What if it was my assistant, Steven? Yeah. And he's basically being a tool anyway, right? <laughs> Just and, a tool to get me a haircutting appointment. And if I was a full-time assistant, I might call saying, this is Steven calling for, or I'm, I'm calling on behalf of Inyash getting him a haircut appointment. Yeah. So maybe, I'd, maybe I want my robot to say, say the same thing. Right. I mean, it would be an identical interaction from from their perspective because yeah. they don't they don't care they're just like do you, when are you coming in when are we booked on the other hand i would still feel a little cheated if i was nice to a computer <laughs> so so maybe that is the way to say it is like i'm calling for steven yeah or i'm a robot calling for steven is maybe the idea is that you're not wasting emotional labor yeah um but then at the same time too google assistant's not going to call clearly having a bad day and needing someone to talk to right, right. so like you're not doing any emotional labor other than like not shouting at them. <laughs> and you're presumably not going to do that at the real human anyway. Dude, it's the weirdest thing. My, uh, the contractor that put in my air conditioning and my new furnace, like I was really fucking annoyed with him because the dude, as far as I can tell, is not entirely stable. And so whenever I called, 
he would be like, yeah, okay, I can come and I can do that for you. Let's see here. All right, here's my schedule. Man, it's been a really just a busy week. I got so much going on and he would chat with me for like five or ten minutes about nothing randomly going places he once was like yeah i think i think we do need to spend more money on the military because we don't have enough submarines we need more submarines man and i was like dude you're you you literally have some sort of weird mental issues but and i was unhappy at the time i was like i just want someone to get in here and fucking put an air conditioner in my house why am i doing this but now i look back on that as like Man, remember that weird dude that put in my air conditioner who thinks we need more submarines? That's hilarious. It's like, yeah, he's going to stick out in my memory. So That guy clearly had no filter. That's weird. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm paused because I don't really know what to say there. Like, he, he's violating the expectation of the, of the contract that you guys have with that conversation. It's yeah. like, I'm not, I, I'm not calling to talk to you. I, forgive me. I'm not, trying, I'm not talking to you as a friend yes. or even somebody that, you know, I... If, if at all possible, I'd avoid talking to you altogether. If I could do this online, I would. Yeah. But you take appointments over the phone, so here we are, right? I've, speaking of haircuts in this example, I've, I've gotten haircuts from people, and they'll tell me about, like, problems with their kids at school and problems with, you know, their neighborhood and their house, and I'm just like, man, you know, it's hot out, right? Like, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to say? And so I, and I, you know, I do, you know, I make, I, I make, I think I do a good job. I like to talk and I like to, I like to engage that kind of conversation and be friendly. But at the same time, one or two times it got kind of like personal and I'm just like, you know, holy shit. Like, do you remember my name? Mm. Like, are you just desperate to talk to this about somebody? And in that case, I'm happy to listen. But if I was having a rough day and I'm just like trying to get something done, it's like, man, I, I'm not wanting to hear about this right now. And the robot will never try and, you know, badger you. If this person, Ooh, I imagine the next step for this, if it's not rolling out at the same time would be, setting up Google assistant for your, like your own personal business, right? Yeah. Or I mean, even it's, for it's yourself, only, it's only going to be a few months until it's your Google assistant calling the haircutting places, Google assistant and the two assistants talk to each other. And that sounds ideal. <laughs> then no human ever has to interact with another human. <laughs> I am finding myself much more enjoying like talking and hanging out with people. And it's been like in the last 10 years and in, in the coming, but then I ever would have thought of, like in high school, mm-hmm. um, I was a very shy, probably from my lightly bullied upbringing, but like I, I remember like the first person I didn't really like I'd never been introduced to that like I talked to and it was like my second semester maybe not the first but I remember like this is a big moment for me I talked to somebody who sat next to me in class my second semester of senior year of high school oh wow and like I didn't know who this person was before I talked to them and that wasn't like the first time but I remember it being a watershed moment for me as a developing person yeah it's, like that's where I'm at that's where I'm coming from yeah, yeah. and so from that I, I love talking to people I love going to meetups and meeting my all these people that I know and I like doing this and uh, I, I really enjoy my social time which isn't, isn't something I would have predicted for myself. All that said, I would love to make it super voluntary to where like, I don't call this because of my haircuts. I don't know who does, but if I was that kind of person or other, other services, man, letting my robot talk to their robot and let leaving both of us time to, you know, browse Reddit on our phones instead. That sounds great. (laughs) So I could, I don't know how, I don't think this will be the degradation of society because this is just for like simple things. This isn't for like, you know, replacing conversation or replacing friendships yeah it's just for weeding out the tedium and i think that's the whole point of computers and robots right yeah but i don't know maybe the tedium wouldn't be as tedious if we connected with people a little more so i was not convinced no no i was just thinking of of different examples so like i was coming back from fort collins a couple weeks ago and i swung through uh mcdonald's because i'd use the restroom we went inside Mm -hmm. and uh, because it's going down the interstate and you can order, I haven't been in one in years. I don't know when these came up, but I ordered at a kiosk. I pressed buttons on a, on a big, you know, tablet that was as tall as I was to place my order. Yeah. And 
the only time I had to talk to somebody was when they handed me my thing. I said, thank you very much. Yeah. I thought that was actually pretty nice. Because, yeah. I mean, people hate running cash registers. People probably don't like trying to, te- to talk to the person at the cash, cash register like a person. Um, plus, I don't know if you ever worked a dull mind-numbing service industry job, but well, it, I mean... It, for A little bit for about two weeks yeah, at King Supers. Yeah, yeah, it wears you out right away, right? Mm-hmm. And like when you're on the clock there, like four hours into your shift, someone asks you like, hey, Inyash, what's the capital of Wyoming? And you're like, I... What? what what are you even talking about like you can't draw basic facts you can't think you're you're just you're completely turned off right okay. so like for many in many in my personal experience from doing some of the stuff for years was like you're not i'm not really a person when i'm doing that job i'm just monotonously doing that job and trying to engage a person is exhausting that's the worst part of it so like I don't know if, you know, there are a lot of people who enjoy that sort of thing. A lot of people, you know, love, you know, like um, my company uh, where I work, they have a large customer service department because we have lots of customers. And those people, probably a lot of them don't like it because customer service sucks. But some of them do. You're helping people figure their stuff out. And at the end of the day, you get to brighten their day by helping helping them have solved a problem. But that's also like the only thing that they're doing. You're not distracting them from like trying to do the other five things they're being paid $9 an hour to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what point I'm making with this other than I do think that I don't see this being a bad thing. I'm actually really looking forward to it. I was just, I was slightly surprised by how negative the reaction was and how quick I had not expected that. Because I also, when I first saw it, was like, that's eh, kind of cool. What other negative reactions were there? Like other than the well, fact that... That was might- it. That was like, this is, this is a lying to people or something. You can't do that. I, I don't think it would be nice to say, I, you know, if the robot said, <laughs> I'm Steven, I'm calling for an appointment. Because that is lying. And right. You know, I am a human. I am totally a human. <laughs> I'm fully human. Check out all my legs and stuff. Isn't there a uh, subreddit? I'm totally a human or something? Something like that. Totally I'm sure there not is. robots? Yeah, totally not robots. Yeah. But like I, I think we kind of talked about, at the end of the day, you're when you're making an appointment or you're taking one, you're not a person. Neither of you are. You're just... You're, you're economic. You're, you're doing a you're job. unit of productivity. Yeah. You know, one downside could be that this could replace some jobs, and that's a downside. Mm. Um, you know, there are some people whose jobs it is probably to do things just like this. I think anyone rich enough to afford a personal assistant is going to want the the esteem actual of well, having the, the esteem of a personal assistant. Yeah, but the actual a human would still be better than a machine to have as a personal assistant. Like this is this this is technology that will only be used by people who do not currently have personal assistants, so no one would be put out of a job. Oh, I meant like the hair the person taking the appointment at the hair place. Oh granted they probably cut hair, yeah, they too, cut hair too. But like um bigger companies, you know, if you're if you're writing a lot of calls or something, you might that might be a full time job. Okay. Um you know, we probably could have staffed one less person at the pizzeria I worked at through college if there wasn't somebody having to answer phones because oh. um, that person would also do other stuff. But since there was a lot, so we didn't take online orders because it was a mom and pop shop and they liked to be, you know, in the 1990s, mm-hmm. they did it all over the phone. So if that could also be done with a robot, there would probably be one less person on staff. So whatever that means, yeah. uh, that's an externality, but that's just progress. And that's, we're going to lose more and more jobs until either we all starve to death in the streets or are raiding the razor wire compounds of the mil- of the trillionaires or something else happens. Yeah. So that, that's that's just going to happen. In the meantime, and I think my vote is enjoy your robot and enjoy not having to talk to people as much as possible. <laughs> Excellent. I do have one other thing. Let's sort of a uh, rat chat thingy. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, so the... Uh, one of our friends recently posted on Facebook the uh, her problem with family movies. That every family movie starts out with uh, 
young person is in an abusive family that won't let them listen to music or won't let them marry the person they want to marry or something. So young person leaves the abusive family and gets to go and be an individual and do their thing. And the abusive family eventually says, look, we'll let you come back into our family and you can have this one thing. And the young person goes, okay, that's great. And so they've won that one little battle and they come right back to the abusive family and everything is great forever. And that's just a horrible moral qualifier family movie they mean movies about families or like family movies like movies a whole family can get behind and watch movie a whole family can get behind and watch i can't think of a single movie that follows that premise other than like cinderella and she doesn't go back to the family does she the 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 ones that were brought up were coco and brave oh i didn't see there are those okay okay so that's fine i'm sure it's I'll, i'll take that point as given but i can't i didn't know this was a common trope i don't i don't know how it's moderately common Hold on a second. I only see superhero movies, so. (laughs) (laughs) That is not the case in any super... Well, let me go through them all really quick. Nope, none. Okay. With a vague except... Oh, wait, shit. No, that doesn't count. Thor 1 doesn't count. His family wasn't abusive. He was being a dick. Okay. All right. (laughs) Hold on. Can you give me just one second? Yeah, do your thing. All right, cool. While Enos browses Facebook and succumbs to his life in the computer, um, I will point out my two rat chats, which are super ripoff. I'm going to just... I'll link to them in this. Uh... Scott Alexander's review for 12 Rules of Life by Jordan Peterson and um, Paul Graham's uh, Why Nerds Are Unpopular, which I already made notes to include in the uh, description here. But the Paul Graham one was the one that Zeke wrote in about, and uh, I read that this week. And if you're a fast reader, it'll probably take 15 minutes. Uh, Zeke, if, which is the time that Zeke quoted me, if you're me, it'll take you almost an hour. So um, I don't know what my problem is. I read really slow. So, all right. Well, did you find it? I did. All right. Okay. Her summary is, family movie, young person, my family is trying to violate my autonomy, forcing me into a marriage, forbidding me from enjoying music, etc. I will rebel. Young person's rebellion leads to exciting but stressful adventure. Young person, I miss my family. I was wrong to rebel. Now that I realize I love my family more than anything, I will sacrifice my autonomy and be a good family member. Family, now that you've accepted our dominance over you, we've conveniently learned our lesson about letting you be your own person. You may play music or choose your own spouse or whatever. Happy ending. So I am thinking of something that vaguely follows the trope. I saw How to Train Your Dragon when it was new. So I have no idea how long ago that was. A uh-huh. long time. And from what I remember, <laughs> the dad's name on that, he was this big hulking figure played by Leonidas. Uh, what was the actor's name? Um, Russell Crowe? No. Oh, uh, it was uh, Gerard Butler. Oh, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was... Nope. That's it's very rare Russell that Crow. I get to call somebody out on an actor because I'm yep. really bad at knowing non-Avengers. So <laughs> anyway, so Leonidas was, you know, big, powerful voice. His son's name was Hiccup. <laughs> and the whole thing was, you know, Hiccup was a small, puny kid. And they're all Vikings and he's giving them a hard time. Then he goes off and finds and tames this super badass dragon. And, and then he's popular. And then cool stuff happens in the movie. It's actually kind of fun. I, need, I should probably rewatch it. I also haven't seen The Incredibles. Speaking of kids movies, that I need to watch. Incredibles was really good. That's the unanimous thing I've heard. Yeah. I haven't avoided it. I just never got around to it. And now the sequel is coming out 11 years later and it's right. about time. So Yeah, the, the Incredibles definitely does not follow that trope because that one's not about a young person. It's more about the dad than anything. So we'll have to ask our friend uh, if How to Train Your Dragon follows this recipe because it might be the closest I have. But if it sounds like what, what they were describing, they go off and have their adventure and self-actualize a little bit. And then they come back and the family's also grown. And learns to accept them. It's not like they're going back and putting back on the shackles, right? Yeah. They're just saying, hey, you got, you know, I'm better now, and I, I've shown that I can do without you. And they're like, you know what? You're right, but would you deign to be with us again? 
and we'll treat you like a person. So that sounds like a good outcome. So what was their, what was their issue here? Well, uh, their issue was that the young person has to start believing they're not entitled to autonomy and then come um, before, the, before, the family, uh, before the family starts coming around to the fact that maybe they are. Like the young person has to be like, uh, my autonomy wasn't that great because I miss you guys. And only then does the family start thinking, well, maybe we can give you a little bit. <laughs> maybe I should see one of these other movies. But I do like the heavy shots on autonomy because I know that this, this was a previous guest. And yeah. I, I think it was Shelley. She said the message is that uh, a good person lets their family own them. But a good family is a little nicer about how they own the, their people. And, and I mean, my thought on that was that, yeah, I mean, that's true. And that's a great way of putting it. But, uh, you know, the thing is, a lot of people don't think of, because th- this person uh, that we had on as a guest is very much into the individualism and autonomy, you know, but a lot of people don't think that way about humans. They think more about as collections of people, you know, and so the family unit is, is more like a single organism and like one one person is really upset that's like an organ is failing right and the person leaves the family and then the whole the whole organism is hurting and it's a story about how the organism comes back and learns to to be healed to reincorporate the organ and everyone is one again and together and happy because there was something out of whack with the body before and now the body is fixed and that's why it's a happy ending and uh our, our friend just very much disagrees with this sort of issue on very personal, very personal um, grounds. But it reminded me of this fantastic rationalist article on Ribbon Farm that I read a while ago. So I went and reread it, and that is my rat pick for this week, uh, or my rat chat topic. Uh, the name of the article is Minimum Viable Superorganism. And it talks a bit about superorganisms like the Catholic Church and the U.S. military. And like the amazing things that they can do when people all work together. Uh, we did, we, this, this was Shelly. We had her on, on episode 34. Yeah. Um, and maybe another at some point. I can't remember. That sounds right. Who I knows? Think we, yeah. Anyway. Um, so the, we talked about, I think I'm sure autonomy came up at some point in that episode. Cause that's something that I, that she talks about a lot. And I think it's, it, she has a really powerful take on it. I think it's yeah. interesting. And so. I really admire it. Yeah. I, I like Shelly and like her viewpoints. Totally. Uh, but the, the minimum viable superorganism uh, basically Uh, said we can do these amazing things when we work as a single organism and how how does this happen uh let us investigate how how this works and so they they thought do people coordinate because of like a strong man forcing everyone to work together that doesn't really work in fact one of the first um ways that super organisms you know got together was to overthrow tyrants (laughs) people who were trying to impose their will just by being strong uh, what about uh, everyone gets together and says we must all do these things for our common good and the problem with that is always the free rider problem the one person who doesn't do anything still gets all the benefit and uh, when it comes down to it everyone can do that and nothing gets done at all uh, so why is it that selfish individuals motivated you know for their own self-interest still get together and manage to work as single organisms that benefit everyone in the end. And what they propose, and which I think is, I've seen echoed elsewhere too, and which I really like as a take, is that uh, nature or evolution, Azathoth, came up with an incredible hack, which works really well, 
being that we don't consider it work to admire people and praise them. Like when we see someone really fucking awesome, like uh, Thor or, or Captain America or someone we really admire. Now you're speaking my language. Yeah. We want to go up to them and be like, dude, you are badass. I want to hang around with you. Can I like buy you a drink or something? Or just like, you know, I do, it doesn't feel like work to praise people, right? You want to like praise people that you really admire. And likewise, uh, being admired like that is an amazing payment. It feels really good. And so people will do things for the common good because it feels good to get that praise and people don't consider it work to praise people because it feels good to do that. And that is just the hack that nature invented that uh, social, uh, in this article, they call it social prestige. In other articles, I've heard it called, um, crap, something similar, but just the, or status prestige, just the fact that admiration is how we pay people is what helps people work together. And which is also, I think... A reason we should try to focus a little more on in-person communities because it's really easy to admire people in person, face to face. It's much harder to do it over the internet. Well, it's easy to scream into. No, it's easy to say it and no one hears it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, we were talking about Yudkowsky earlier. You know, Harris or some people with Peterson. Yeah. You know, they don't know that you exist. They're, no. they, they're glad that you exist and they're happy that you like their stuff, but like they don't hear your praise personally. Sometimes maybe whatever, but right. you know, you tell your friends you appreciate them, that you like the stuff they do like, and I, yeah, it, pays, I, it pays them off. They like it. And you know, you get to feel good about being able to express how you feel. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. There's certain artists that I absolutely love and who will never know that. And I mean, that's, that's one of the <laughs> shitty things about writing is that you basically get no feedback ever. You know, you're like, did people love this? Did it touch anyone's life? I don't know. And that's not entirely true. I have gotten a few emails and God, I treasure those so much because they are the best. But for the most part, you just have no idea. And that's why I think it'd be better for people to see each other in real space much more often because then you can, you know, show that appreciation for each other and and build those bonds, which I think is how super organisms manage to exist and why it's sort of society is coming apart a bit at the seams because we don't see each other in person nearly as much anymore and we cannot pay that same praise to each other and get the payment of praise that we used to get if we're just interacting online. Like a like on Facebook or an upvote in Reddit is not the same thing as someone coming up to you like with an admiring look in their eye and being like, dude, that was really awesome what you did last week or man, thanks for helping with building that wall. It's a great thing the lions aren't eating our children right now. (laughs) That's true. And the people who slack off they don't get that praise. So they, you know, there isn't that much of a free rider problem. Yeah, sure. They still get the wall around their house, but everyone's like, yeah, that's the fucking slacker that didn't do anything. Screw him. Hmm. We're not giving him a beer. And, and so that the payment problem takes care of itself. I like that. That's, that's something to think about. Yeah. It's a great article. No, that sounds cool. I look forward to reading it. Makes a point about, you know, the mice came up with this great idea in an old story that, they, the, they could stop the cat from eating them if someone would just hang a bell over the mouse's neck or, or someone would just hang a bell over the cat's neck and they could hear it whenever it came up, you know? Hmm. And then all the mice looked at each other and were like, yeah, but who's going to put the bell on the cat's neck? And no one wants to do that. But as more as the cat eats more and more mice and this becomes more of an issue, maybe some young mouse with not much to lose but really wanting all the glory and potential hot mouse pussy that comes with <laughs> being the guy who hung the bell on the cat is going to take that risk to, you know, pull it off and maybe be the hero. Probably get eaten, but maybe be the hero. Yeah. All right. I like it. Yeah. So that was, that was my article. We'll link it on the, the show. Love it. Yeah, for sure. 
not my personal article, my article that I enjoyed. Your I, pick. Yes. You got it. Your, your rationality chat. Yeah. Chatter. Oh, I should totally also mention the author of that thing as we speak about praise. That was posted on Ribbon Farm, on Ribbon Farm by Kevin Simler. Kevin, you wrote a great article. Why do I know that name? Mm, he had to beat up two burglars that were trying to rob his house while he was left home alone on Christmas one year. He was just a kid at the time, so they made oh, a movie yeah. about it. That rings a bell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's, uh, that was Kevin McAllister from, from Home Alone, which reminds me, Donald Trump was in the second Home Alone movie very briefly. I remember. Did you hear how Stormy Daniels described their sexual encounter? I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> it was hilarious. She, so, you know, she's getting sick and tired of people just constantly focusing on the sex part. And someone asks her, so, like, what did, what did you and Donald do? She's like, well... Oh, she spanked him with a Time magazine with his face, or with a, not a mag, not time, with a magazine with his face on it, right? Well, I mean, in, in this particular interview, she was like, well, uh, I asked him, you know, do you want to act out one of my movies? Because that's what most people want to do. He's like, no, you probably act out your movies all the time. Let's act out one of my movies. And so uh, she went up to him and she said, Hey, mister, where can I find the, the room or whatever Kevin's line was, you know? And he leaned over me and he said, You just go down that hallway, uh, take your second door on the left. Then he turned around and walked away and I never saw him again. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And that was his big sexual fantasy with Stormy Daniels. Wow. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I'm glad I know that. Um, I... I feel bad for not remembering. Kevin Simler was the co-author of The Elephant in the Brain. <gasps> that's Kevin. That's the Kevin Simler. That's the one. Fucking a. That was the. Uh, yeah, that was him. Well, he's he's a good writer of things. Cool. Well, I'm glad to hear that he's writing stuff and and doing stuff. I liked The Elephant in the Brain. Sorry, Hans, uh, Robin, a lot more than like Robin's uh, OG writing. Mm-hmm. Robin is kind of inaccessible to me. Huh. He it's dense, it's hard, and it doesn't energetically bridge that inferential distance that Yudkowsky does yeah. that said it's full of awesome content but you have to be like you don't you have to have you have the sense that you have to be as smart as robin to enjoy it and i don't have that so like i or you need someone who's really good at communicating like kevin simler yeah it was a good team yeah um so sweet all right cool shall we thank people yes cool uh first of all as always thanks to kyle moore our sound engineer shout out to kyle what what and would you like to do the thinking of the person this week sorry i don't have it ready Inyash keeps the list on his computer so i do so I, I get i know like i see the names on patreon but i remember sometimes the last person we talked to and never remember the rest so yeah shout out to pen long for uh supporting us on patreon makes a huge difference and it does we feel appreciated it's it's almost like people uh like us and if you can't support that's cool you can always leave a, a review on itunes or just tell one of your friends that you think might be interested in it yeah and you know like i said don't give a lot you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you can't give money to. It helps us keep the lights yeah. on, helps to keep the show going. But, like, don't be like, oh, where can I budget this in? If you have to think of how you're going to budget it in, don't. Yeah. That said, uh, speaking of Patreon, uh, this conversation went on for almost three hours, three and a half maybe. Uh, no, not that long. Not all of it is going on the episode. So almost three hours. Some, yeah, almost three hours. So some section of this will go to Patreons only. So trying to give some exclusive content. Nothing that's going to, like, really, you know, be a huge, you know, pay to access the good stuff kind of thing yeah but, but if you more like the of the stuff more that you heard near the beginning yeah there's more of that that sounds yes exactly thank you i wanted to say that yeah. all right i'm glad it came back to me i struggled off the air for like 30 seconds to remember that so all right cool thank you to david greer for composing our intro music and to the samariki project for composing our outro music all right i'm all set 
Okay. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. Oh, yeah. If you want to interact, send us feedback. You can email us. The email is on our website, or you can post directly on the website, thebayesianconspiracy.com. And we have the wonderful subreddit that we enjoy, slash r slash thebayesianconspiracy. That's the one. Cool. Sweet. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>